Welcome to the Curiosity Solution. I'm your host, Beverly Beal. Join us as we explore the science of curiosity, share stories of people who've used curiosity to improve their lives, and maybe inspire some aha moments along the way. Welcome, welcome, Paula. I am so pleased that you were able to find some time to speak with me today. Um, uh, for those of you who are tuning in, Paula Pebsworth is a world-renowned primatologist. She, <laughs> hey, you've worked all over the world. I know that you are that you you are renowned. You are known around the world. Um, so, but, but the thing that I find the most fascinating um, about this woman is kind of our own personal origin story and just how we've watched each other evolve throughout the years. So uh, as a little background, Paula and I met when we were on our respective honeymoons. Uh, we were at Jamaica or in Jamaica. Um, and, you know, I think we both kind of spied each other uh, across the, uh, the um, resort, you know, with our little hair braided and all that, and, you know, getting horribly sunburned in between all the parts that is, an experience I'm not going to forget easily. Um, but again, as we have continued our friendship throughout these, oh my gosh, over 30 years, I feel so old when I say that, but I'm not old inside. Um, I have watched her transform her world into one of just kind of being a, a wife and a mother and 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 working through various jobs into someone who truly is making a difference not only in the animal welfare uh, world but also with the humans that are coming into contact with them. Uh, so I, I'm kind of babbling on here because you know again I, I tend to get a little little. Um, fangirly with, uh, with certain people in my life. And Paula, you're one of those people that I, I do tend to fangirl a little bit over. So um, I apologize if I'm not making a lot of sense here. Um, feeling is mutual. Aw, thanks. So Paula, let's kind of go back a little bit to you know, you 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 made the comment uh, you know in the you know the show notes before or the the, the message that I'd asked to, before this. You know, yes, you were a an enophile, so you 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 know you studied wine, you worked in wineries, uh, you became uh, interested in primates, etc. But how does one go from growing up in California? Is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I'm, how did you, I'm how actually... did you get into the whole monkey business? Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm actually a Texan. I was born south of Houston. And uh, my dad was a chemical engineer and just a very curious man, um, loved science, loved nature. And our house always had National Geographic's lying around. And that was about the time when, um, when I was a child, when Jane Goodall was first going into the field. And I remember it's a 1965 edition with Jane on the cover with her arm outstretched to a small infant chimpanzee. And thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I would like to do that. And I think in the back of your mind, you know, you have these ideas, but 
Uh, you know, uh, after Texas, we moved to Iowa, where my dad worked for another chemical company making plastic, of all things. He's like one of the world-leading specialists in uh, low and high-density plastic. And, um, you know, just as my early years, just thinking, gosh, I'd like to do that. And my parents telling me that are both kind of, uh, uh, you know, conservative people saying there's lots of things you can do. You can be a doctor, you could be a nurse, you could be a teacher, but I'm not so sure about that. And so I think that there's a moment, you know, as a child, you sort of tuck those ideas or those dreams away. And as an adult, I moved to California and was uh, in Northern California, not too far from Napa. Um, and I've always loved the idea of growing things and and became interested in wine. Um, it took some classes at Davis and worked at a couple wineries, uh, testing wine and helping to process and make wines. And I really enjoyed it. Um, but there was a moment when, you know, you just feel like you let your dreams go. And um, I decided to go back and get my master's degree and just to see where that would take me. And during that time, you know, I'd been doing a lot of chemistry work. So um, I was looking for a position that would include chemistry. And uh, my now husband had gotten his first um, uh, duty assignment in upstate New York at um, Plattsburgh. And he asked if I would move out to New York. And I said, no. Nope because I'm, I'm going to start graduate school. And he said, well, if I found you a position, would you consider? And I said, sure, yeah, I'll consider it. Um, but, you know, he's a fairly introverted person. And I thought this won't go anywhere. But lo and behold, he went to SUNY Plattsburgh and he explained, I've got this person in my life who's very chemistry oriented. And, you know, do you have any kind of positions? And they said, well, gosh, you know, as luck would have it, we have a junior faculty member that just got a huge NIH grant, NSF grant, and he's got money and no student. And it's a very chemistry oriented project. And I thought it was sort of serendipity, you know, okay, there's a, this is a way that I could get my master's degree and continue doing something I'm quite good at. I'm very meticulous and precision oriented and learned how to use all kinds of fancy pants analytical um, equipment. And, um, and it's to me, what's interesting is how life weaves itself. Um, I am a curious person by nature. I can become interested in just about anything. And so this project was looking at um, pesticides that had been used in apple orchards for 60 years. So it was lead arsenate that would kind of kill the gypsy moth that was damaging the apple trees. And um, they would spray that pesticide on and then it would drip down the leaves and all around the tree and into the soil. And at a certain point in time, people decided to pull out their tree and they were going to um, sell the property for um, you know, just divided up and for, for subdivisions. And so we were testing the soil to make sure that the soil was not contaminated. Um, and what we found was that it was very contaminated. Uh, the arsenate was traveling and the lead was bound up into the 
organic matter. And so I learned a lot about soil, a lot. How do you analyze soil, collecting soil samples? And um, then a few years later, we were living in Italy and I decided, um, gosh, you know, I would rather have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. And so I reached out to, I'll call her, she is a world-renowned uh, primatologist, Patricia Wright. Um, she does work in Madagascar and has been there for decades. And she's done a tremendous amount to conserve and protect these extremely rare and endangered lemurs and prosimians. And I just asked, you know, may I come and volunteer my time? And she said, come on. And so that was the first place I ever did any primate work. Um, and I think, you know, kind of the moral of the story is it's like, you just have to ask because people do say yes. Um, and once I started working in uh, Madagascar, the lemurs that I was following, they're um, the golden bamboo lemur. Their diet is extremely high in cyanide. They eat the shoots of bamboo. And I became just, again, curious and fascinated about how does a 12-pound animal eat something that could kill a human? Hmm. You know, they're tiny. And so, you know, I became interested in detoxification. And another somebody that was at the site said, if, if this conversation or this topic interests you, you know, you'd probably also be interested in self-medication. And you need to reach out to Mike Huffman. And so I did that. I reached out to Mike Huffman and Mike Huffman said, hey, I have a new site. And if you can get some money, you can come and do research with me. And so I applied for a Fulbright and I got a nice position in Uganda um, studying chimpanzee self-medication. Um, and what we, we focused on um, plants that chimpanzees eat but also on the soil that they eat because geophagy or geophagy is very, very common in the animal world. And so here we go, you know, it's just like it loops back around a skill that I never, ever thought I would use. I'm using and I need. And so I wanted to learn why do they eat soil and what do they get from it? And so, you know, further down in my career, I just kind of continued on um, studying soil eating. So it kind of went from wine chemistry to environmental soil chemistry, toxicology, and then into a, a discipline where I needed that knowledge and information. So I'm sort of uniquely qualified um, to my, my peers because many people who study primates they don't have a strong background in chemistry and they certainly don't have a ba strong background in soils. So um, I think that that's just, it's just really interesting how life presents itself. And I always think of life as kind of a tapestry and you just never know, you know, how it's being woven and what, what it's going to look like in the end. Well, that ain't that the truth. Um, that. I guess I you I know you had told me at one point in time about your father and his um, uh, role in developing plastics. Now that you look back on his career, um, are there any things that you've picked up from just you know, kind of just being exposed to that particular 
realm. Do you think that's where your interest in chemistry came from? Or it, was that just something that kind of pulled you in despite your best efforts? Because not everybody wants to do anything anywhere near what their parents wanted or were doing. Yeah. Um, I don't know, because I mean, I think we did not have the same thoughts and ideas about plastic that we do now. I mean, I remember, you know, um, it's quite a process to produce plastic and uh, my dad creating these small plastic beads and they did the first analyses, you know, did it make sense to put milk in a plastic container or continue to use glass jars? And, oh, wow. um, I mean, I always just remember thinking my dad was a smart guy and he was a jack of all trades. I didn't become interested in chemistry, I don't think, because of him. Although one summer in college, I did work at the same plant that he did. And it was interesting to see where he worked and kind of the relationships that he had with other people. Um, I, I enjoyed that. And, and I'm glad that my kids have also had the chance to kind of come to the field with me and see what it's like to, you know, follow around with baboons. Um, no, I just think I had an opportunity and I'm sort of in the, the habit of saying yes. Um, I try really hard, you know, if I can do something, um, it looked interesting to me. And, and they asked, you know, uh, are you interested in coming out and just checking the wine for, you know, sugar content, alcohol content, and, you know, just uh, other parameters that you're, you need during harvest. And I helped in the bottling room and I helped pump over wines. And um, I like working with my hands and I love to travel. And um, from working in Napa, there is kind of an exchange between California and Australia because our harvests are opposite one another. So uh, once we're done, you can, you know, go and so I went one year to Australia and worked on their harvest. Um, and that just, you know, gave me an opportunity to spend time in Australia and New Zealand and Fiji. Um, and, I, you know, I love to travel for lots of reasons, but I will say it is because I'm a curious person and I want to understand more the differences, kind of embrace the differences between people and just really appreciate, you know, how how we're all unique. Um, the day we're all the same and we speak the same language and wear the same clothes, it will be a very sad day for me. I agree. Nobody needs the United States of generica globally. Um, so you, you know, again, obviously with your uh, history and, and background of working in in um, different wineries and, and, and amongst the, the plants and the grapes, et cetera, um, you are you also got to see different uh, places using different methods to combat the um, the pests because I mean again, it's agriculture. I grew up on a farm. I know how hard it is when you've got hungry grasshoppers who are now competing against this very same food that you're trying to grow for yourself. Um, you know, at least in my childhood, um, there were definitely chemicals that were used and for a while that were not, that are not allowed anymore. Now, you know, we all lived, uh, to tell the tale. Um, but later on, my parents moved to a more, 
organic style of, of gardening because truthfully it, it ended up being cheaper because the chemicals were so much more expensive and it was healthier. Uh, they're, you know, always having a very, very strong mind towards health. Um, have you, with the experiences that you had in the U.S., like in Napa back, you know, when you were doing this versus Australia, was there much of a difference between how they were approaching the soil health and and the the uh, the vines? Um, I didn't notice so much the difference in um, growing, although there is a there is a difference. So I was in, in Napa. I was working at a very small very small boutique winery and a lot of their fruit was hand harvested. Um, they had some vines that were just very, very um, low production. And so they tried their best to handle those grapes with the utmost care because they were only getting a few cases out of that. Um, but the winery in Australia was a very large kind of commercial wine um, so I think a lot of their wine was uh, was machine harvested. The grapes were machine harvested, where in Napa it was hand harvested. But that will vary a lot depending on um, the importance of the, the crop or um, the yield. You know, do you have a high yield or a low yield? What I really noticed was a big difference in production. And that changes a lot because like in California, you are not permitted to add any um, sugar to the wine. So there's a direct correlation between sugar and alcohol. So if it's a year where you get a lot of rain and the sugar concentration is very dilute, you're going to get a wine with not much alcohol. I mean, there is a range that they're sort of aiming for. Um, but there's some things, like you said, you're a farmer and you're at the mercy of the weather. And that's the way it is. In Australia, um, they can add sugar, but they can't add acid. Um, in California, you can add citric acid. Um, so, you know, to get that kind of bright taste to the, the wine. And there's other reasons why they, they do that. But it's more the production. Um, I worked at wineries that had very small, uh, they fermented their wine in barrels or they um, aged their wine in barrels. And that varied depending on the finish they were looking for. If they wanted something really oaky, it was new oak barrels. If they wanted, you know, no oak to be imparted, but just to soften, it's kind of an older barrel. Um, so I was shocked to see in, in Australia, they had like a huge piece of cheesecloth and they had all of these kind of oak shavings and they tied all it up, put it at the bottom of the stainless steel tank. And then they fermented the wine on that. And so, <laughs> so, you know, but if you think about it, if you, it's a way to impart some oak taste to a wine without having to purchase a bunch of oak barrels, but the, the production is different. Um, I think right now you are seeing a lot of wineries that are trying very hard to use as few chemicals as possible. It's sort of, ref but it will always reflect what it is that their cons consumers want. Um, in Texas, I don't know that that's as important, but I think it, I'm hoping that it will become so, um, so that people will take great, great care with the earth and they'll, you know, they won't use harmful pesticides and 
Um, they will do like integrated pest management to try and reduce um, kind of insects or, you know, even chickens and ducks out there eating, eating up your insects um, or, you know, just eating the weeds between the vines instead of mowing and a bunch of um, petroleum-based products that are for, for mowing and keeping all your weeds down. So I think things are changing. And I think that there will also be, when what I saw in South Africa, it's the same thing. And they have, they call them like conservation warriors, uh, the World Wildlife Found Foundation, um, giving some kind of a certification to different growers for the things that they're doing to go above and beyond to coexist with wildlife, whether that's, you know, using um, something kind of sophisticated to scare away birds versus just killing them. Um, the baboons are also a big problem. They love wine. I mean, I think great wine grapes, I think in particular, they like white wines, but um, uh, really they like white wine, white, white wine more than red wine. I think it's All not right. as bitter, you know, they're a bit like children. So if you have a choice, I mean, I'm sure that they would like any of the wine, the grapes, the wine grapes that were sweet. Um, and so, you know, one of my next projects, what I'm hoping to do is um, I shifted a little bit from self-medication to working with farmers uh, to coexist with primates. They're very hard to live with. Um, they're extremely dexterous and they're smart and they're very patient. And some of the tactics that have always been used in the past, like chasing and guarding, they only work so long and they sort of, you know, monkeys will sort of wait, wait it out. They'll wait for you to go in the house and go eat your lunch. And then they can dash into that field and gobble up whatever it is they want. And in 15 minutes, you know, they're gone. And that 15 minutes was this, it was like if they had just foraged naturally 15 minutes about the same as four hours of natural foraging so it's, really? it's hugely yeah it's hugely beneficial for them and they're just really smart and opportunistic and you know depending on what the food source is i always make the comment you know they they will also go through the trash and see what kind of human food waste is left in the trash and if you had a choice between some leaves and some and some old pizza, well, heck, you'd pick old pizza every day. You know, it's got salt, sugar, fat, and it's you know can be pretty tasty. Um, so there's there are lots of things that we're doing to modify um, animal behavior um, and drawing them closer and closer to us, which I think actually isn't beneficial for humans or for animals in a perfect world. I mean, I love to see them and I love to spend time with wildlife, but just to find that space where they can have their own lives and we can have our own lives and we, we can observe them, but we don't negatively impact them and they don't negatively impact us if they're coming into an urban area. So when you were, you, you referenced South Africa a couple of times. Um, is that, I, I know that you were doing some work on a um, like a baboon reserve or, you know, like a, there was that where the intersection between your interest in wines and the um, the the primates coming into coming together? Was that kind of where that happened or was this was are, are those things still kind of separate? 
Um, it's an idea I have in my mind. So when I was in okay. South Africa, uh, I went there to study soil eating. Uh, the, the troop of baboons that I followed, there was about 115 individuals in a troop, which is huge. It's a typical troop size is about 40. And Holy cow. That is that I didn't realize it was that big of a difference. Yeah, no, there were, it was a huge troop. Um, and because they were so large, they also had a lot of conflict with our neighbors. And, and I really felt for my neighbors, I, you know, I felt their, the, the problems that they had with the baboons. Uh, we had a huge dairy farm near us and the baboons would um, eat that pelletized food, which is terribly expensive. The farmers would mm -hmm. have the, the cows inside the milking parlor and, and um, the baboons would, if they could, they would get into the barns they would, so they could eat the pelletized food and just, you know, wreak havoc. It's uh, the scared the bejesus out of the cows and, and, you know, so it's not good for anybody. Um, well, they so can be I kind of aggressive, too. They can, I mean, can be. Can they be kind of aggressive to people? They can be. But I think um, it has a lot to do with the dynamic that's set up. Um, humans have this idea that we're being benevolent when we give animals food. And animals mm. really appreciate it. And so, you know, here's this monkey politely, you know, with the handout asking, but not all primates are like that. And in baboon society, uh, nobody shares food, not even mothers to their own offspring. Everybody's you get you get your own food. And so for an, for someone to be giving them food, the message that you're giving to them is not I'm benevolent. It's that they are dominant over you you are more subordinate to them. And so it sets oh. up, you know, this idea that in the future, I can take it. I'm the boss. And so I don't know, I wish I could, you know, kind of get that point across for people. Don't, don't feed primates. I mean, I don't know which wild animals, if you, if you work in a sanctuary, absolutely, you need to be feeding, you know, animals. But in general, let animals find their own food. Um, you may not understand kind of the message that you're sending them and then they can become quite aggressive. They don't understand perhaps like one person is different from the next person. Mm -hmm. um, well, now that makes general, me wonder about you know, like kind of veering off of, of your, your personal experience just with the, the, the primates. Um, I know in my neighborhood, I still see people putting out deer corn uh, on their driveway so that all of the deer that live in the ecosystem around the area where I'm at. And that makes me crazy because we end up seeing a lot of these deer on the side of the road because they've been hit by a car because Absolutely. they think humans are there to feed them and they don't, and they're, they're just, they're too humanized. <laughs> humanized. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really sad. And I wish that people would stop feeding deer. Um, I think, you know, my friends who work at like Texas parks and wildlife will say, will tell you that um, deer or corn is not a good food for deer. That's not what they naturally eat. And deer have a job. You know, there's things that deer should be doing. And so you, you remove them from that kind of a wild space and into a human space, eating a food that's not good for them. However, it sort of tricks the body. And so their body 
tends to think that they're healthier um, than they really are. And that's part of the reason why you see so many twins. And so we have a problem with too many deer. And then you've just exacerbated the situation by feeding them. And so now you got one baby, but now you have two. Um, so, you know, it's just that whole idea of, I'll just say the, the road to hell was paved with good intentions. And I know people mean well, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm giving a talk in a few weeks about that and just to try and get that point across that we, we really shouldn't be feeding, um, wild animals and, you know, well, you know, when that, that's, uh, that is so interesting because I really have noticed quite a few, um, mother deer with twins, in my neighborhood. And, and that, that surprised me because, you know, again, when I, I grew up on the farm in Kansas, we never hardly ever saw deer with twins. Yeah. And you know, pretty, yeah. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. So you have also worked in India um, in the, with the populate, the, the um, monkey population there. Um, what was the mo most, you know, the, the major source of conflict? Cause I think, think it was it wasn't around the temples was it or was it just some other people's farms because i know when you were in um saudi arabia you were working with the um like the, the trying to keep the the pilgrims you know those the pilgrimage pilgrims from getting attacked by the the monkeys or just eliminating that conflict talk to me about the how those two projects uh had similar goals and how did, did you treat them similarly or I don't know, I'd like to know some more about that. Yeah, they're completely different. Um, oh. And I think, you know, how you approach, how we approached or I approached those two projects was different because there's a different culture. There's a different dominant religion um, and there's a different willingness to coexist. And so in India, um, you know, it's predominantly a Hindu population. I don't know. It's at least 95% of the population is Hindu. And, um, you know, their whole idea is sort of like the, uh, the respect and, and dignity of all animals. And um, so the first thing that if they have a conflict, it isn't to kill them. Um, they do try very hard to coexist with wildlife. And if you are in kind of urban populations, you will see humans have modified their behavior a tremendous amount. They've modified their dwellings. It's like the humans are in the cage to keep monkeys out of their houses and their apartments. Um, and, you know, so I didn't work so much in an urban area, urban. I think that they've lived with monkeys for thousands and thousands of years, and they have a good idea about how to do that. Um, I worked with farmers because um, the biggest problem in India, as I see it, is um, the monkey population eating the crops. And so you have, you know, a very poor population. Um, and I think I mentioned this the other day to you that they, the farmers take out loans um, for the seed and to be able to plant their crops. And um, when I did my postdoc in India, we did the same thing. We we plowed the land with oxen, we planted the seeds, we weeded, we did all of this stuff to make this crop grow. And we had all kinds of nematodes and, you know, so, and it wasn't just the monkeys and it was the feral hogs and it was all this stuff. So, you know, the farmers are trying hard to, you know, eke out an existence. And then I, oh gosh, you know, it must be like 
a week before you're going to harvest and the monkeys descend like some kind of a locust. And so our, our goal was um, what strategies can we use to reduce access to the crops? So um, in this project, after we planted our corn, which is corn is like crack for monkeys. Oh my gosh, they love corn. We put up all kinds of physical barriers. We tried, um, we took old saris and we sewed them together and made a sari fence. We used like a jute rope and we um, immersed it in engine waste oil and then put chili powder on it. Um, we tried like a green garden netting. We tried ultrasonic devices. We tried bioacoustics. We tried drones. We tried we tried all kinds of things um, to see you know what 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 works. And we learned a lot on that project. Um, you know, one is that monkey populations or monkey even little communities there they vary from one area to the next area. One area that's completely naive. I'm sure some of these really simple techniques work. And then another population, same monkey, they just don't care at all. And they just walk into the, you know, the cornfield like, you know, a hot knife on butter. Um, and, but we did learn that there were some, some techniques worked, worked really pretty well. Um, the goal was to find simple strategies that farmers could implement themselves. Um, we also tried some, you know, there's like lots of different ways to approach a problem. So you can have a solution that I'll say is sort of top down where it's the government is re responsible. It's, it's cost a lot of money, costs a lot of resources. And so in India, they are sterilizing the monkeys to reduce the number of individuals that are having offspring. Um, I think they've sterilized about 170,000 rhesus macaques. Wow. In, just in the northern part of India. And um, so that's one solution is kind of top down. Then you've got, you know, the farmer solution, which is sort of bottom up. Um, these very simple techniques, they do the, all the chasing and the guarding, which I know that that's something that they want to do, but it's just not very effective. Um, and then you also have these novel approaches um, that are often science driven and that reach researchers tried. So um, while in India, I tried condition taste aversion, we tried drones, we tried ultrasonic devices, which they might normally not have access to. So we, we tried kind of on a holistic approach. Um, so that was India. And Wait, suddenly, the, 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 you said something about a taste aversion. Can, what was that? Say some more about that. That sounds intriguing. Sure. Um, so have you ever eaten anything or drank something that made you really sick? And so Peppermint sick, shops, college. Ugh. So, you know, uh, it's been uh, 40 years or 30 years and you're like, oh my gosh, no, I, I'm still not drinking that. Just mm -hmm. the smell of it just makes you nauseous. Mm -hmm. So um, that whole process happens because of the primitive part of your brain, the brains, the brainstem. It's a, um, a function of the brainstem to prevent you from poisoning yourself. And that's something that, you know, it stays with you for a long time. It can depend on like, how sick did you get? Like the severity of the sickness. Um, 
was that food or item novel to you? If you drank schnapps, you know, 50 times and you loved it. And then the 51st time, oh, you didn't feel, oh, it made you sick. Okay, then it's not, you know, that aversion isn't as lasting. But at the very first time you have schnapps or the very first time you have spaghetti bolognese and you get violently ill, it stays with you. Um, and so the goal is to, uh, I can recreate that um, using a drug. So um, let's say I wanted monkeys to stop eating bananas. So in a captive setting, um, I, and I, I sounds bad, but I sort of focused on juveniles because this is a crop that they probably hadn't had before. So if I can get it, you know, make them sick on bananas when they're young, they could leave it alone for the rest of their life. So um, I trialed uh, four different drugs and the side effect of those drugs is na nausea. Um, and it worked. I mean, it was amazing to see, you know, uh, you give them a treated banana. I must sound like a terrible person, but <laughs> um, give no, them. But a you're trying to actually keep them, keep everybody safe. You know, you yeah. want them to go find yeah. this food elsewhere, but because otherwise, you're right. There are going to be farmers who are like, look, I have to have this crop, and if the only way that I'm going to harvest this crop means I'm going to have to kill these animals. Right. I think getting them a little queasy and, and right. making them throw up or something is a whole lot kinder than, than essentially leaving them as fair game for, for hunt, you know, for being hunted. Yeah. No, I don't think you're, you're terrible at all. I think that's, that's quite admirable. And well, um, I've had to have all of my research reviewed by ethics boards and they had, they had the same opinion that it was better to have a stomachache than be shot. Um, but it was an amazing thing though, to give them a treated banana and then, you know, they just kind of light around and look like, you know, you don't see that kind of vomiting, but that I just could tell they didn't feel well next day to give them a completely intact banana and they, they want to eat it, but they don't, or they might even look at it and turn their back. So they don't even have to look at it. Wow. Wow. And so my goal, you know, um, I'm hoping that I can actually use this same technique with vineyards um, in South Africa. So we could reduce the amount of grapes that baboons are consuming using a strategy that's uh, self-regulating. It's no chasing. It's no electric fences. It's the baboon deciding for themselves. I don't want to eat that. Oh, my gosh, no. So um, I think that we just, you know, the whole area of human wildlife conflict um, is only going to get more severe as time goes on. And mm -hmm. so we really have to think outside the box um, and just to try these different strategies. There will not be one silver bullet that's going to work in every single situation. There will always be, you know, the need for top down, bottom up, you know, novel research. Um, sounds and, like a whole lot of curiosity to me. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just, uh, and, you know, trying to get rid of flim flam. Um, I'm listening to a book right now called, um, all about animals or something by late, uh, Lucy, Lucy cook. 
and just, you know, some of the things that scientists have done to understand animals in the hundreds of years before, wow, you know, um, it's, it's, you just have to shake your head. Um, but hopefully we're learning from our mistakes and we're trying to move forward and, and do things in a way that um, is kind, you know, to animals. And we do have their, um, their best interest at heart. The, I'm curious now about, you know, kind of circling back a little bit to the soil piece, you know, that very first project with all of that uh, arsenic and lead, you know, as soon as you, you said what they were spraying the trees with, my, my heart was like, oh, that sounds like a super fun site to me. Yeah. Um, and how, how did they, did you have any impact on what was next? How do you clean soil? How do you clean that away? away? Do they just have to scrape it all off to a certain level and then landfill it? I mean, yeah. It's seriously, really, that's what, how they had to do that? It's really difficult. I mean, there's a couple of things that they can do, but in part it is scraping off that top three inches of soil um, because that's where the lead was. Um, and then the you know how the heck do you get rid of it? Are you digging a big trench and you're burying it? You know, um, I mean, there's no a way. Um, we put these chemicals in into the environment, and we just always need to be mindful that this really is a closed ecosystem, and there's no throwing anything away. Um, you can use something like bioremediation, where you plant something that will take the um, the, the lead up or the arsenic up into the plant material, but then how, what are you going to do with the plant? I mean, so you still have the, you know, something you have to get rid of. Um, you can't exactly burn the plant because then you're releasing the lead again. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, it's just, it's really hard. It's, this is a very difficult uh, decision. And you know, once they start removing the soil and you've got all of that, um, the dust is in the air and you're getting contaminated dust in your house and this is where children are playing. I mean, you know, it's not a good situation. So I think you do need to, you know, if you're buying property or buying a home, um, you know, become knowledgeable about what was, what was there before. Um, if it was previously used for agriculture, what's the soil like, um, what chemicals have been used because they're persistent. Many of them stay in the soil for a long, long time. I mean, the arsenic does travel. And the question is like, okay, at some point in time, are you going to have arsenic in your groundwater or your drinking water? So lots to be. Well, I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that with fracking. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the chemicals used in, in fracking have been found in in the aquifers and i i have always i mean as a feng shui consultant one of the things that you know i'm that feng shui translates to wind and water so whatever is being carried along the wind is is impacting everybody else as well as the water the water is equated to money and life in and traditional uh, Chinese culture, especially around feng shui. And so we're always looking for how is, 
you know, where's the, where are the water sources and how are we, you know, protecting that? Because we, 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 we have to have water. Yeah, we have yeah, to. It's, an, it's incredibly important. And I think um, water scarcity is going, it, it already is a huge issue and it will only become more of an issue as time goes by. Um, and so we do need to really care for the soil. That's where, you know, we're getting all of our food and um, the water, you know, we cannot live without water. When you, now I'm kind of switching gears here a little bit. Um, my brain keeps wanting to go back to the, the, the food that you were feeding these, these uh, primates that, that they were getting sick from and you were focusing on the juveniles. Um, you know, there have been studies of um, conditioning mice to equate pain with the scent. I think the, the experiment used peppermint. I, I've got to go back and look at that again. But, and then they, they, so they would have these mice conditioned to smelling peppermint and not giving them the pain, but they would still freak out like they were getting, going to get shocked. And then stop the experiment four generations later, spread, put peppermint into the crate and about 50% of the mice, they, they, it's like they somehow had that genetic memory that peppermint means pain. Mm. Have you had this experiment with these monkeys go long enough to see if their offspring would also recognize this particular food as, you know, stay away? Is there like an inherited uh, aversion that you've been able to notice yet or has it not gone on long enough? No, that needs to be done. Um, I'm going to be giving a talk in Japan in, in a month and we'll have recommendations. And so the captive work has been done, but more field work needs to be done. However, um, there is a pretty kind of rare and endangered marsupial in Australia called the qual. And when they brought cane toads into Australia, cane toads are, have a toxin and the quals were eating the cane toads and then dying. And so they have the same idea, okay, for conservation wise, can we make the quals sick on the taste of the cane toad? It doesn't have to look like the cane toad. It doesn't have to, it only has to smell and taste like the cane toad. So what they did, which is I think extremely clever, um, they made little cane toad sausages. They took them apart and they made a little sausage. Then they put the drug inside the sausage that would make the qual sick. So the qual ate that little cane toad sausage. They got sick and they learned to avoid them. And what they're seeing is that it's not just that generation. It's the other, the subsequent generations that are also avoiding cane toads. So I think that there can be some kind of a genetic memory um, of that, like you're saying, whether it's a taste or um, so, but more work needs to be done. And I think, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we think outside the box. And it mm -hmm. could be that even for a mitigation strategy to um, encourage primates to stay out of a certain field, you know, we, we could shock them and it could, there could be some kind of an odor and like we could try, someone should try that. And to see, does that same sort of an idea where you have an association with a smell and, and, a, and a pain, you know, 
could that work? Um, primates are, sometimes they will absolutely take the shock. I mean, it just depends on um, the resource and how badly they want it, how hungry they are. Um, but it seems to me like, you know, we, there's got to be something, we've got this big brain. And so what's separating us from primates? What do we have that they don't have? Well, right now it's like, what we have are guns. And if we don't like what you're doing, we'll just shoot you. And to me, it's just like, what does it mean to be humane? And we need to use our big human brains. We need to be able to out, outsmart a monkey. I mean, they're pretty darn smart. And the same thing with, you know, there's lots of animals that are a challenge to live with. Um, I attended a conference this year. The IUCN has had a human wildlife conflict conference in Oxford. The conference was dominated by the elephant people. Um, and then also the lion people were there. The tiger people were there. The shark people were there. There was like all these um, different animals that are in conflict with humans and trying to compete for resources. And so that's only going to become more prevalent. And for people who have a curiosity, this sense of, you know, really thinking of new solution, creative solutions, there's always going to be a place for that person. And, um, you know, I highly encourage them to think about these strategies and, and it could be in an academic setting, but it doesn't have to be, um, lots of ways to, you know, try your thoughts. That sounds like a fascinating conference and also a frustrating one, because when all you're, you're hearing about is conflict, um, it seems like there's never any good news. Uh, can you tell me, do you have, have you found any positive stories, any positive results from this work that you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for to, you know, the focus really should be on coexistence. That's what the goal is. The objective is coexistence. And to me, it's kind of like a three-legged stool. So you at some point have to modify animal behavior, you have to modify human behavior. And then there's that education and awareness component. Um, and there's a woman who does work with lions, her name is uh, Amy Dixon. And Amy got up and, you know, she was talking about how, you know, as researchers, we understand animals very well, but we often do not understand people. And we don't know what motivates people and we don't know how to modify their, their behavior. And she was setting up camera traps to try and document the number of lions and where they were going. And um, ah, the people in the village were, you know, stealing the cameras, damaging the cameras, mooning the cameras. And, and she, she realized, you know, this project is absolutely not going to work unless I reach out and have community involvement. This, mm -hmm. These are their precious resources. These are their lions and they're really free to do with what they want. I mean, they need to see the value in them. And so she set up, she's like, okay, I'm going to change. I'm going to mix it up. And so I'm going to give the camera traps to the community and I'm going to tell them, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, you're going to get points for um, the different animals that you take pictures of. Baboons get X number of points. Wild dogs get another point. 
uh, pangolins get another point. And so they have this big discussion of how many points they got. So the big, the big points were 10,000 points for a pangolin. And I think there was like a thousand points for a baboon. And these points would go towards school supplies, for medical supplies, for things that the community needed and wanted. And they were game on. I mean, and they, they started going to the local markets and the guy, you know, was like, he saw there was a pangolin for sale. Then he said to the guy, where did you get that? And the guy, you know, told him where he got it. And he looked at him and he said, you put that back. <laughs> That's worth 10,000 points. <laughs> and so you got the community was the one driving the project and you had it flip. And so, I mean, I think that you will see more and more initiatives like that. And um, I was at a conference in Malaysia and another researcher was telling how that people got points for planting trees and for plant, um, growing seedlings and all of that money points equated into a bicycle or sewing machine or, and so it's like, I think these kinds of um, challenges can be solved when we work together. It can't be just like researchers have this idea and we're going to do this thing. It's like, mm -hmm. you've got the stakeholders, the local stakeholders. We, we absolutely have to include them. You know, they have fabulous ideas. We need to listen to them. Um, and so I have heard a lot of that. And I think it's, we're coming full circle where you have these like parachute scientists sort of just dropping down and we know better than you do because I went to the university. Um, but in reality, the people who live there, if you had spent, you know, five minutes asking, what have you tried and what didn't work? Well, you could have saved yourself a couple years worth of research. Um, I mean, we might do things in a different way and maybe we, you know, we get the data that shows it didn't work. But um, I think what I'm seeing a lot of is working together and creativity. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm an optimistic by nature, optimistic person by nature. And so, yeah, I think that there's lots of reasons to have hope and um we, we what can't. a brilliant idea to gamify conservation. It is, you know, because humans that 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 and that, that's doing two things. Um, you know, obviously there's the whole point system, and so there's the reward piece, but it's also creating a community, uh, you know, and really reinforcing that shared goal, a shared purpose. And from my perspective, that's one of the things that's lacking in in our world these days we we kind of find ourselves into these you know individual silos um and i imagine that that type of approach could help to bridge the gap between those that are being um you know wanting to save the you know to work you know, to protect these animals versus those that have been more on the exploitation side of things um, you know, I grew up in a time where I just heard about this huge war in the Pacific Northwest um, around the, um, what was it, the spotted owl, the Rocky Mountain spotted owl. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I such craziness over this. But I don't think that the, um, the, the uh, benefits, the pros of saving this were as evident to those who are still trying to make a living. Now, again, this is a long time ago. I don't have any more information than that. So anybody who, you know, please nobody come after me for that. 
It's, it's the same thing. Um, and I think what I've also heard is these education and awareness programs that you work with with children. And so from an early age, they sort of learn the value of, about, of animals. They learn about animals' lives. I mean, when you try and you tell them, you know, monkeys, they have a mom and they have a dad and they have brothers and they have sisters and, you know, they're a lot like you. And so you start to see, you know, we're just one in this web of life, just one species. And I know like in um, Central and South America, I've heard these amazing stories of these kind of youth clubs seeing a problem. Um, they'd put up these some big highways. And so there was they'd lost the connectivity for spider monkeys to get from one area to another area. And they had these ideas to build these bridges and these kind of little, you know, some way of a corridor and with such great pride to build these bridges and save the money and put them together and put them up and then put the camera trap and see the animals actually using them and preventing them from getting hit um, by cars. You know, I, I think there's a lot we can do and there's a lot of reason for hope. And I think in general, people are good. And we just sometimes we're just not we may not be educated about a problem, but once somebody brings it to your attention, then, you know, you, you'll you absolutely um, try your best to, you know, to be an advocate. Yeah. So we've got time for one more question. And this is something that I try to uh, ask every one of my guests. When you are, where does curiosity live in your body? Like when you are looking at like the next conference to go to or the next solution to, to try, um, or, or even the, the next, uh, you know, the person at a conference that, you know, it's like you see somebody's like, Ooh, I need to talk to them. Where does, where do you, is there a visceral experience that you have? And if so, tell tell us. Yeah. It's been very interesting. Everybody's been different. Um, I'm a heart kind of person, you know, I mean, okay. immediately I like my, um, I'll just say my concerns, my compassion, my curiosity, it lives in my heart. And I, you know, I, anybody who will listen, I'll tell them that I do, I want to be of service in this world. And so how is it that I can be of service? What is it that I can do? And so that is very much a heartfelt, um, desire. And so, you know, when I meet people, um, I think as I've aged, I've learned sort of like who would be a good collaborator. I don't, I can't work with other people who don't have the same kind of heart and the same mm -hmm. kind of goals. Um, if somebody says to me, gosh, you know, these baboons are a huge problem and they just need to go, we just need to kill all of them. And I'm, I, I can't work with them. Um, so right away, my heart is like, my, that hurts my heart too much. And I'm like, that is a perfectly fine, you know, if, if that's the solution that you want to use, the, the, and especially if they're from that country, that's their resource. I'm just, a, you know, an outsider. Um, that is their absolute right. But I wouldn't be able to assist them. I can understand that. Paula, thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful information with us today. Um, I look forward to getting to know uh, what the next steps are. And then if you have any other information that you'd like to share with us, um, go ahead and send those links to me and I will put them in the show notes for people to enjoy. Okay. Um, thanks again. And join us next time in a couple of weeks when I will have, I don't know who else, 
somebody else very fascinating. Have a wonderful day.